0: While we were marching through Georgia Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low The Alaman left for the old left hand around the ring you go A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe From an adept gal to Georgia When the Civil War began, the Confederate government didn't have a navy. They had no ships and no facilities to build them, so Jefferson Davis called on James Dunwoody Bullock to create a Confederate naval force. Bullock grew up in Roswell, Georgia, but at 16 entered the United States Navy. When Georgia left the Union, Bullock was commanding a mail steamer in the Merchant Marine. He actually waited until the shots were fired at Fort Sumter before returning his ship to New York and resigning his commission. He was given a unique assignment, travel to Europe and get ships to fight the blockade. This is Moving Through Georgia, and this week a Georgian from Roswell founds the Confederate Navy. The South wanted steam-powered ships that could prey on northern commerce, and they needed them as soon as possible. If he couldn't actually bring home the ships, he was to place orders for their construction. The first problem he encountered was the lack of recognition of his home government. He was trying to buy warships for a nation that no one in Europe would admit existed. Anti-slavery organizations, especially those in England, were actively discouraging the European governments from recognizing the Confederacy and a law on the books in England prohibited that nation from building ships for a war in which England was a neutral party. France had similarly decreed that they would not build warships for a war that did not involve them, and warned the Confederates that they could do no business with their shipyards. Either way, Bullock went to England and set up an office in a shipbuilder's headquarters. There were no suitable ships for sale, so he began negotiations to build two vessels with two separate firms. He acted as a singular citizen ordering ships for his own private use. A ruse but ready cash payments soon convinced the contractors to at least pretend to accept the story. Both ships were to be propelled by sail and steam. They became known as the CSS Florida and the CSS Alabama. He did buy a cargo vessel and filled it with naval armaments and supplies, including uniforms. By now, the lawyers for the builders and Bullock had come to an agreement. The ships could be built for the Confederacy if they were contracted by private individuals who intended to donate them to the southern cause, and only if the weapons were installed at sea or at Caribbean ports. All of this was done over the protests of the Lincoln government, who insisted that everybody knew who and what the ship was intended for, but the English continued to say that they were building a simple cargo vessel for a private client. The U.S. even brought a case against the British government in maritime court. As a reward for his success, Bullock was assigned the rank of commander and given charge of a ship. As he was only a lieutenant before the war and most Navy officers transferring to the Confederacy retained their rank, this was considered a breach of protocol. Despite objections from other potential ship commanders, Bullock traveled to England in 1862 to take the helm of the Confederacy's second cruiser. It was christened under the name Enrica and sailed to the Azores to be outfitted. Again, agents of the United States filed protests claiming that the English shipbuilders were violating the law, and those protests were again ignored. The British demanded proof that the ship was financed by the Confederates and would not act without it. The United States was actually able to provide that evidence, and for a while it looked like the new ship would be seized. Bullock, however, was permitted just to take her out once on a trial run. The Enrica never came back. Her name was changed to Alabama and the Confederate flag was hoisted, but as it sailed to America, Bullock returned to England. France had developed a new kind of floating artillery battery known as an ironclad, and Bullock was sent to procure some for the South. Now, these vessels definitely couldn't be disguised as merchant ships, but the Liverpool shipbuilders set to work on them anyway. They would be 220 feet long and 42 feet wide, with three to four and a half inches of armor plating. And again, the pleas of the United States that these ships were being built illegally went unanswered. A further legal complication arose when an English shipbuilding company constructed a ship named the Alexandra. They prepared to sail it to America and the United States believed that it was meant to be a gift to the Confederate government. The U.S. took the issue to maritime court, but they could not definitely prove that the ship was intended for the Confederacy, and it was allowed to sail. It would later be seized in the Caribbean, and would never enter service in the Civil War. Now this supposed secret was out. Everyone knew that, despite whatever the shipbuilders said, they were building vessels that would be converted to warships and sent to serve the Confederacy. Ownership of those two new ironclads was transferred to France in a legal fiction to evade prosecution. Overwhelming evidence from the United States and the threat that overlooking such an obvious deception would do irrevocable harm to diplomatic relations between London and Washington led the British to seize the two ironclads in 1863. The builders were permitted to complete them, but they were not to be sailed away. Negotiations continued, but it was very obvious that the ironclads were intended to be sent to the Confederacy. Bullock decided to cut his losses, and sold the ships to England. Those two ships, as well as an armored frigate being built in Glasgow at the time, and which was also seized by the British government, could have broken the Union blockade and changed the course of the war. After that incident, the British figured that they had pushed diplomacy with the United States pretty much to the limit and British shipbuilders stopped talking to Confederate agents. Oleg decided to look towards shipbuilders in France. The French had strict neutrality laws as well, but they also had absolute power in the hands of a single man. If Napoleon III agreed to build ships for the Confederacy, they would build ships for the Confederacy. And yes, the Confederates were invited to build ships in French ports and even outfit them for war as long as their final destination was kept a secret. Plans and payments were arranged to build four corvettes with 10 to 12 cannon. Officially, they were merchant vessels built to travel the Pacific. Construction also began on two more ironclads with heavier armor than those ships left behind in England. Those were meant to be completed in just 10 months. Again, the plan was protested by the United States. Essentially, the Emperor of France had given permission for these ships to be built under the condition that their eventual use be kept secret, but this secret was out and it was being passed throughout Europe. A Confederate secretary in France with secret Union sympathies delivered documentation to a United States agent that the ships were being built for the South. To spur on the French officials, the existence of the ships was revealed to the French Chamber of Deputies and to a Paris newspaper. Napoleon III still looked the other way. He was keeping his diplomatic options open, but after Lee's loss at Gettysburg... The Emperor changed his mind. The six ships under construction were sold to European countries. One ironclad was sold to Denmark but the war it was required for ended before it was delivered. Plans were made to bring that particular ship, renamed the Stonewall, to America. It arrived in time to see the close of the war and was sold to Cuba. But Bullock was successful in other ways. His cruisers wreaked havoc on United States merchant shipping and a small fleet of cargo vessels he purchased moved southern cotton to Europe and European goods to Confederate soldiers. Other agents managed to have ships built and some were purchased from Europe. One, the Shenandoah, was purchased in England and sailed to the Pacific to attack United States whaling vessels. Since the only other ships it met in the Arctic were other whaling vessels on long cruises, they were four months late to receive word of the war's end. This is Moving Through Georgia, a history podcast that mostly focuses on northeast Georgia. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review or five stars. That sort of thing really helps get the podcast out to other people. And just a quick note, Saturday, April 8th at Sweetbreads in Demarest, we're going to have a live show. Going to try to have some fun with this, do some colorful characters that lived in Habersham, some of the history of Demarest and Habersham, a little bit about temperance and the evils of liquor, which, as you know, is a big part of Demarest's history, and some true crime, because you can't have a podcast without true crime. I've been very busy writing some new material. If you've listened to every episode, you're still going to hear about 90% new stuff. Of course, free admission. Hopefully it'll be warm enough to sit on the back deck. I hope to see you there Saturday, April 8th at 2 o'clock. Of course, the most famous of Bullock's vessels was the Alabama, taking 20 ships in its first two months at sea. It, along with the Florida and the Shenandoah, are credited for sinking up to 200 merchant ships flying the Union flag. If the Confederacy had been able to take possession of the ironclads and corvettes being built in France, the successes of the Confederate Navy could have brought foreign recognition and eventual victory. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low The Alaman left for the old left hand. around the ring you go A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe From an for pretty gal to Georgia That's all